And I want to welcome you tonight to the Grand Old Opry. <laughs> Next up is little Jimmy Dickens. <laughs> That's great, guys. I can't wait to the Halloween thing to hear a camel train. You don't know that one. Yeah, you do know it. Bubba, come here, Bubba. I want to show them my favorite part on the camel train. I want you to do the start. Just you go real slow. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. You know. You're only the, we're doing the Acapulco? Yeah. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, hang on. It was an evening. It was a day in early springtime by an ancient wayside well. Ellie, really? Ellie is there, Paul, to rest his camel train. Keep going. We found the bride for Isaac ere the evening shadow spell. For his weary journey had not been in vain. One, two, three, boom, boom, boom. Oh. <laughs> That's my favorite part. Remember that song, Mr. Bassman? I remember, remember that song. Oh, yeah, two of you, three of you. All right, I won't sing it for you then if you don't know. It won't mean anything to you. Proverbs chapter 21. Hey, while you're turning there, I just found out that uh, at the back table, there will be a list for uh, those of you who will be willing to bring food over for Joe and Jessica. So please uh, stop and sign up for that. I'll remind you at the end. Uh, but we can get some food over to them. And there's a list back there on the table. But uh, Proverbs chapter 21, uh, we've been in it now for a while, and I, I think it's, uh, it's just been a great chapter so far. We have got some really, really, really great examples uh, out of there. And it really is kind of like the book of Proverbs itself. It's just filled with great principles that we can glean for in our lives. I think the book of Proverbs, uh, for me personally, has been one of the uh, fun things that I've been able to teach. I remember when I did Romans a while back, it's been quite a while, but I really enjoyed Romans too. Um, but the book of Proverbs has just really kind of opened up the Bible for me again. Uh, I went through Proverbs probably five or six times in my life uh, over the years, but this time going through teaching it and dedicating myself every week to a really exhausting out almost every verse. Uh, it's really been g good for me and fun for me. And last week we finished up verses 12 and 13, and we talked about stopping the ears, stopping our ears to the cry of the poor. And by not taking what God has given us, the true riches of the Word of God, and then giving it to people who are spiritually poor. And then how then we don't do that, that we cry out, and yet the Bible says from that verse that, uh, that God does not hear our cry. Uh, we saw the great unknown doctrine today that God not hearing our cry uh, because we refuse to hear the cry of those that are, that, are, that are just suffering and going through it. It's totally foreign today. You know, uh, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9 is uh, one of my uh, premier verses that I always keep in front of me because it simply says that God's ways are not my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Boy, there is no truer statement anywhere in the Bible than that statement. 
And if we have to do anything in our lives, I know I do, if we have to do anything in our lives, it's constantly being in the state of working through that principle and realizing when we look at something, when we deal with a circumstance or a situation, do we see it the way God sees it? Do we see it His way? Are we thinking the thoughts that He would think about that scenario? This is one of the things that the people ministry does. We, we focus it on principles. Principles in the Bible are the thoughts of God about everything in life. You know, and we're so far that from for that today. Back in Acts chapter 17, verse 23, Paul was got, went to Athens. And when he went to Athens, he, he met the people who live in Athens who were called Athenians from Athens. And he said there that they had a great God, and there was a scripture underneath that great God that said, to the great unknown God. You know, I know the Athenians were unsaved people, and I know that they were a pagan group of people, and their unknown God was unknown as far as being the real God. But you know, Christianity today, they're in the same boat for the most part. They have a Bible, they go to church, but in reality, God is greatly unknown to them. God's people today, Christianity is so far from the reality of who God really is and how He deals with us. It, it, you know, it's, it's hard for most of God's people to, to even understand that. You know, God, it's hard for God's people to even think that, that after the rapture of the church, that God Himself, the Bible says, will send a man strong delusion. If he's heard the gospel, that he'll send him strong delusion that there is absolutely no way that person can now get saved. It's hard for us to understand that. I have people all the time scratch their head and say, man, that's a tough concept. Yeah, I know, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 says that he will. We don't know God. It's hard for us to understand that God would give a man a lie to believe. God who is righteous, God is holy. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, God who cannot lie. And yet, the Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, that God does just that. He'll answer a man after the multitude of the idols that's in his heart. It's not that God will, will lie to a man. It's that the man wants to believe a lie, God will give him that lie to believe. Hard for us to... That's not our concept of God. We think God is like our grandfather. You know, my grandfather, I didn't know him very long. He died when I was pretty young. But I knew Grandpa was always good for, for one thing. And that's when I'd go to lunch there, he'd always slip me a few quarters. And that's the way a lot of God's people look at God, like some big grandfather. And you just hang around him because every once in a while, you expect him to flip you a couple quarters. We don't understand the magnitude, the majesty of God. It's hard for us to, like I talked about last week, to comprehend how that God will take His hand off of your life and let you be to yourself and to your destruction, even though you're His child. Well, you know it <coughs> well as I do. Sometimes when you have a disobedient child and he, uh, he or she won't do what's right and they refuse, that sometimes you just got to let them go. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man there that wouldn't do what's right. And the Bible says to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So God will do that. It's hard for us to believe. He did Israel. 
It's hard for us to understand that God would, I mean, He's my Heavenly Father, uh, uh, that He would, as a child of God, and he's my, that He would hide Himself from me and not reveal to me where He's at. Yet Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 says He will. It's hard for us to understand that God would not hear our cry when we refuse to hear the cry of others and we're so pious in what we do and we don't have time for the folks that are out there like this little gal that committed suicide. If there just would have been one person maybe in her school that would have reached out to her because of what they had. I mean, you're not going to tell me that people didn't know that she was struggling with something. But we don't hear those cries. It's hard for us to believe that God won't hear ours. Yet Proverbs chapter 21, verses 12 and 13 says that He won't. I, I got a message I preach on the laughter of God. There's four types of laughter in the Bible. And the last type of laughter is God laughing at the condemnation of an unsaved man or woman as they stand before God at the great wine throw judgment, all of their lives they had made fun of God, laughed at the gospel, laughed at everything that, that uh, God wanted to do for them. And the old saying in the world, we all know it, he who laughs, laughs, laughs best. And God always gets the last laugh. Hard to believe God laughing at an unsaved person going to hell, isn't it? It seems like it goes contrary to everything we as Christians are supposed to do. We're not supposed to laugh at somebody. And you have an unsaved person, you know, that, that you don't like or they don't like you and, and they walk across the street and get run over by a bus. You don't walk up and laugh at them. Well, you shouldn't. Even though they're, they're, even, I can see some of you have done that already and you're feeling bad about it this morning. Even though they may have done you wrong, you, you show compassion to them. What's wrong with God here? There ain't nothing wrong with God. This is an unknown God that God's people don't know and understand today. They think he's a big marshmallow. <clears throat> they think he's somebody up there that just sits with a long white beard and every two or three thousand years comes out and looks down on planet Earth and says, yep, still there, and goes back in and sits down again. God's people today, because of the fact that they have lost their Bible, they've lost any true knowledge or concept of who God really is. He's unknown to them. In this day and age, in this time of the church that the Bible says in Revelation 3.17, as we saw last week, that is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This church age, they simply can't comprehend a God like that. And along with that, it's, it's totally foreign to them to think that that uh, uh, most of what God's people do as Christians for God in churches and their own wife and relationship with God, get me now, it's absolutely worthless. I, I, I know that's hard for us to even grasp. It's, I, I don't like it, but I know a little bit about the Bible. We have come to the place where we have turned church services into worship services. You'll drive down the street and you'll see on the marquee of the churches, worship service, 1045. And everybody goes in there to worship God. <coughs> they'll, they'll get up, the song director will get up, and they'll say, we're going to have a, a song of worship now. 
Right? Did that not happen? And everybody gets up and sings a song and thinks, this is, uh, we worship God through music. We've lost the concept that worship is not something that you do. It's not a service. It's not a particular song. Worship is your state of attitude of heart 24-7 that you love Him with all your mind, all your heart, and all your soul. You don't have that. You don't have worship. But what we've done is lost that concept. We, we, we pray. Across this country this morning and across this city, there's people getting up praying. They're having prayer meetings. They're having this and that. People are getting up and praying. And you know what? 99% of it goes, doesn't, bounces off the roof. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says the number one thing we don't know is we don't know how to pray. And if your prayer is not based on the biblical principles that launches prayer to heaven, you're wasting your time. You might be going through a drive through at McDonald's and putting an order in for a Big Mac. People have a tough time with things like this. We try to think that we can minister to people without doctrine. Without things that clearly show what's right and what's wrong. And we get in our mind today in Christianity that we don't want to have doctrine. We all want to get along. Well, the first thing you learn about the Bible before you go four verses in Genesis 1, we are not all going to get along. The light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Try to get along with that. We live in a world today, a so Christian world, that is so touchy and feely that everybody just wants to try to get along with everybody. So they get rid of the doctrine in the Bible. They get rid of the hard line of the Bible. They get rid of the stuff in the Bible that rightly divides it and shows people that they're wrong for what is right. We don't want to go there today. We just all want to get along. And yet, Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that the first thing the Bible is proper for is doctrine. We've come to the place that we actually think that we turn our children, our young men and our young ladies over to Bible colleges or seminaries to be really be trained for the ministry and for the Word of God. Yet Acts chapter 19 tells you that's the worst thing you could ever do. The fact that the devil has his own set of Bibles and oh, foreign today. It's a foreign concept that in, that in most of the churches today, God's people are going to God's house with the devil's Bible and wondering why they're not getting anything in their life. Try to tell them that. The great unknown God, we don't have a clue of who he really is today. Because we are, we are miserable, we are wretched, we are poor, we are blind. Pretty quick we're going to be naked. Christianity today reminds me of the story found in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 46. Jesus was 12 years old. Uh, he was born in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, and that time period, and then very quickly, by the time you get to the, almost to the end of the chapter, now he's 12 years old, or the middle of the chapter. He's 12 years old. And his parents are now uh, are, are, are going down the road, going somewhere. 
And they're all going as a family, you know, and they just all having a good time. And suddenly after a, a whole day's journey, a whole day's journey, somebody looks and says, uh, Jesus with you? No, I thought he was with you. No, Jose, was Jesus with you? No, I thought he was with you. Or maybe he's over here. Maybe he's over there. And you know what? For a whole day, they were on their road traveling through life and did not know that Jesus wasn't traveling with them. And I want to tell you something. There's a lot of God's people today that are walking down the road of life and they think that Jesus is with them and he's somewhere else. You better learn from that story. And with all of that, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, in spite of all that it says and our spiritual condition and the problems we have and not knowing God, the Bible says, and we know us not. Boy, that's an understatement. We know us not. We think we have everything. We think we've got, because we live where we have in America with all that we have and the big churches and the big Taj Mahals and all the mega stuff that goes on and all the fake stuff that we actually think God is involved in that he is not. And you know us not. You know us not that you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Miserable. Now let's look at our text today, and with that short introduction of last week to kind of bridge it all together, let's now look at and move on to some more really good principles. Now I'm going to say this, some of this is going to be in a practical sense that you're going to get from, and then for you people who are into the Bible, I'm going to give you something today that you need to get down. I'm going to give you a big piece of your puzzle. Yesterday in Bible Institute, uh, we got, uh, in Bible Institute, what I'm doing is, it's about a three-year program, and I, I'm breaking the Bible down into 17 sections and helping them understand each section so they can all put it back together and have the core. We got to the premier point uh, in the Bible yesterday, the first coming of Christ. Probably without a doubt, the number one thing that we and I, you and I need to understand because everything hinges backwards on that and forward on that. And we really laid it out, and I told them yesterday that uh, we're going to talk about some of this today, so then it'll be a review, to do it'll be a revelation. Now, he says in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 14 through 17, he says, A gift in secret pacifieth anger, and a reward in the bosom strong wrath. It is a joy to do just, uh, to, to, uh, to, it is a joy to the just to do judgment but destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in a congregation of the dead. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Father, help us today to, to glean from this and to grow from this and understand uh, how this all applies to us. Uh, these are good people. Uh, these people are not like your average Christians. They're here today because they do believe you. They want to know you the right way. They want to understand all the right concepts about Christianity based on the Bible, not man's tradition. They don't want something made up, souped up, canned. They want something that's real and living and alive. That's why they're here today. And only you can provide that. 
And I pray, Father, that you'll take and use me, this unworthy vessel, to give them the truth of a holy God who lives and reigns uh, through all of eternity, that we might understand you better, that we might get closer to you, and that we might find within you those desires of our heart that only you can fulfill. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask you, and amen. Now, verse 14 says, A gift in secret pacifieth anger, and a reward in the bosom strong wrath. Now, doctrinally, from our past studies in Proverbs, and we saw this in Proverbs 17, verse 27, Proverbs 16, 37, I think Proverbs 17, 8, and 18, 16, if I remember right, we saw and we talked about this concept. And it deals in part with the deception of the Antichrist bribing his way to world power, appeasing the enemies or his opposition with gifts. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a new concept. We see it in the world all the time. Somebody, somebody giving something to appease somebody to get something from them that they want. And it, it, we find it on all levels. Giving a gift to appease somebody's anger. You do something stupid, your wife's mad at you, you bring her flowers with your fingers crossed, you hope that it makes up for it. In the corporate world, bringing together a merger or trying to close a deal with opposing parties, many times it's the gifts, the extra things you kind of throw in. In politics, we talk about going across the aisle, the Democrats and the Republicans. More times than not, they work out a deal because somebody on the side got something that they wanted and held out till they got it. That's what it's talking about. We've covered it before. In churches, in Christianity, listen, there have been many a man that got the position of a deacon, not because he earned it, but, but the pastor wanted to put him in a point of authority because the pastor wanted something from him or to appease him in something that the pastor wanted to accomplish. Such tactics are standard operational procedure to the world today. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. We've talked about that before. We want to we get into the meat. Look at verse 15. Here we go. It is joy to the just to do judgment, but destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. Now, this is a good principle for all of us, and based on last week and what we talked about, people who are really saved and love God, people who are really saved and love the Lord, love the Word of God, they will be joyous when they have to make judgments that will keep them in fellowship with God. They'll be happy about it. There'll be some things in your life that you have to choose. You'll have to look at circumstances, people, places, whatever. And you'll have to evaluate that, how it's going to impact your relationship with God and make the judgment that that has to go. And the Bible says, if you're really just, you're really saved, and you truly have a relationship with God, you'll be happy about those things. I know that probably most of us, I know I'm not, I know probably most of us are not here yet. We ought to have the goal to get here. And that is that we put our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ above every relationship on this planet. There isn't nothing. There isn't anything. There isn't anything we have, anything we want, any desire of our heart that supersedes our having a relationship with Him. Last week, we talked about the great principle in 1 Corinthians 2.15 where it says, He that spiritual judgeth all things. And we talked about your ability as a child of God to make judgment calls. You don't judge people. 
But there are things where people do, the things that people are involved in, the places that people go. You have to look at those and you have to make a value judgment based on your value system. Am I going to allow that into my life? Will that help me as a Christian or will that hurt me as a Christian? I told you last week, I don't like to be around negative people. I, I really don't. Uh, neg- negative people feed off each other. Uh, one person gets negative, they'll search the world over to find another negative person, and they'll feed each other's negativity. I don't need that. I don't need that. And I'll tell you why. Because negativity will always win. I told him in Bible Institute yesterday, I, I used the example of going home, and you know, you, uh, it, it's so basic and so simple. Just pull out one of your, one of your sockets on your electrical outlets. And you'll have that little thing that'll come out there. There'll be three wires. There'll be a ground. Don't worry about that. There'll be a black and there'll be a white. And you unhook those and you got them apart. I mean, uh, one is positive and one is negative. And when you take the positive, I don't care how much current you got going through that positive. You take the negative wire and touch it to the positive. Everything in your house goes out. Negative always wins. You're not stronger than negativity in your life. You may think you are, but you're not. You got a house with the lights on, everything's running, and everything's going good, and you're living comfortable. You just take that positive wire that is feeding everything in your house, keeping the lights on, keeping the air conditioning running, keeping everything, and just take that positive and just touch it to the negative. Gone. We can't allow negativity in our lives. It'll shut your lights out every time. You have to make judgments about that. It's part of a Christian life. I'm sorry. When you really get saved, really saved, there will be some things, there will be some places, and yes, there'll be some people that have to go. And the Bible says that if you really are saved and you really love the Lord, and it's a, it will be a joy for you to let those things go because you want nothing or no one to take from you what God has given you. So many of God's people today are like Lot's wife. You know the story, Genesis chapter 19. Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked city. A city full of people with no hospitality. God's going to come down and destroy that city and burn it out because of the lack of hospitality. That's what they teach you today. They can't deal with the fact that it was full of faggots. They can't deal with the fact that it was for homosexuals and lesbians. They can't deal with the fact that when the, the homo came to Lot's door... They had heard that there were some new guys in town. And they wanted to know them. It wasn't, hi, my name is Joe Faggot. It was in the Bible sense of knowing. Now, I'm sure that, maybe not here, but out there. Boy, you're going to get the thumbs down on this one on that little thing. They wanted to know him. And then Lot, being the moral strength that he was, says, Oh, brethren. That's what he said. Brethren. 
Really? Don't do such a wicked thing. Here, I have a daughter that hasn't known men. Take her. Oh, that's, that's what we do today. We just cover up one sin with what we think is a lesser sin. Well, that wasn't going to work. They were persistent. They really wanted to meet these people. They're going to break down the door. So the angel just kind of twitches his nose like that little bewitched lady years ago. And, uh, and, and they, they, they can't see. They're blind. And so they just walk right out and say, see ya. God says, I'm going to destroy it. He tells Lot, go get your kids and go get out of town. They load up the station wagon, go over to the kids. And, uh, you know, uh, they go up to their house and their daughters that are married, you know, and they go up to that house and, and they can hear the music playing inside. And he's all nervous because God's going to destroy it. And he knocks on the door. Nobody comes. He knocks on the door. Nobody comes. He bangs on the door. Finally, this little window opens. And the smell of marijuana drifts out the door, you know. Lot says, we got to get out of town. God is going to destroy this city, and he's going to wipe out everybody here. Get your bags packed, take travel light, let's get in the station wagon, the old family thruster, and let's get out of Dodge. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that when he told them what God was going to do, they looked at him like one that mocked. Lots of kids thought that the last person on the planet would get a message from God would be their father. You know you don't want your kids ever thinking that about you. So they didn't go. He grabs his two daughters from the home. The rest of them burned up with Sodom. He gets his wife. He gets his two daughters, gets in the old station wagon, and they head out. And I guess they got to get back to the Bible now. The station wagon ran out of gas, so now they're walking. And they're coming up there, and boy, you can hear the old lightning and thunder. They're about 20 miles out now, and you know, you can see Sodom in the distance, and, 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 and they're going on. Lot's saying, come on, come on, girls, come on, come on. But Lot's wife, Bible says she lingered behind. They're way up there about 100 yards, and she's, she's walking behind it. She's weeping, and she's crying. Oh, uh, I was supposed to have a, the ladies' garden meeting over this afternoon, and now we can't do it. We got to leave all oh, that house. I, I love that house. Oh, and all the things that we had. Oh, it was wonderful. I was president of the Ladies Lesbian Society, and I, I know I, I, I was in charge of the gay rights movement and all these things, and that's all gone now. And here I am. Oh, I, 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 my house. Oh, I, I had to leave all my furniture. I had to leave all my clothes. I just got a little bag of stuff. Oh, I, 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 I miss Sodom. And she looked back, and the Bible says she turned into a pillar of salt. You know what the problem was? It's the same problem with God's people. The problem with Lot's wife was that we got her out of Sodom. The problem with Lot's wife is we couldn't get Sodom out of her. And one of the greatest counseling principles you'll ever have in your life is geographical locations and changing them will not solve your problems. You've got to come to a book, you've got to get a hold of a God, and you've got to find some answers. She turned into a pillar of salt. <laughs> Years ago, I was teaching a Sunday school class with junior high kids, and I was telling them, and I said, and Lot's wife, she was lingered behind, and she, 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 she turned into a pillar of salt. 
you look behind and turn into a pillar of salt. One of the little kids said, that's nothing. My mom was driving down the street. She looked the other way and she turned into a, a telephone pole. <laughs> I said, not the same thing. Not the same thing. Luke chapter 17, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Great principle. She couldn't rejoice in letting some things go that needed to go to get her back to God. Hey, life, your new life in Christ should, be, should supersede anything you have had or was that is not pleasing to Him before you got saved. You know, I, I know there'll be, there'll be struggles with the old life. I get that. I understand that. I'm not talking about that. There'll be things from the, when you get saved and you come out of it, there'll be things you struggle with. Hey, there will be things that you and I struggle with all our Christian life. But you know what the difference is? You got to hate those things. You got to despise them. You got to forsake them. People that go all through their life that have the same problem and the same struggle over and over and over again. And they never get past it. And they wonder why. I'm going to tell you why. Because you don't see it as God sees it and you don't hate it as God hates it. You know it's not good for you and you know you ought to get rid of it, but you just want to keep him around just in case. I know it goes. Been there. Seen it. You're not willing to do what 2 Corinthians 10, 6 says, and that says that we take revenge on our disobedience. We like to take revenge on everybody else, but not on our own disobedience to God. And the reason why you never break a stronghold in your life is because you don't ever see the stronghold the way God sees it, and you don't hate it the way He hates it. Having the courage to walk away from some areas of our lives based on our convictions that are based on the Word of God. You know, in a courtroom, judges are a final authority. You're in their world. You have to take your hat off. They'll tell you what clothes you can wear. It's their world. Now, he's the final authority in that courtroom. He may get beat up by his wife and be a wimp outside of that, but when he steps into that courtroom, all rise. He puts on that black robe, hits that little gavin. He's in charge. You know what he does? He looks at each case that he's dealing with, and he looks at it not on the basis of what he thinks. He looks at it on the basis of established law. And he will make a judgment on each case based on the law that has been established for that particular situation. And you and I, as the child of God, you have in your possession the Word of God, which is God's law book. It is God's rule of law. And in your life and my life, we have to make judgments on all manner of things that go along or go against the established law of God. And that's biblical principles. I've talked to you before about you building a library of biblical principles. Many of you have. Some of you, just over your head. Many of you, you're like a lawyer. You would go in there 
room in her office, and they would have a room there that's just lined with books after books after books after books. Thousands of books, and every one of them dealing with case law about something. When that lawyer has a case, he goes there, pulls out the appropriate book, gets what he needs. That's what he does. You ought to have that with the principles of the Word of God. Your mind ought to so be filled, and the Bible ought to be so be filled with the principles of the Word of God that every time you're faced with a decision, you go to the, go to the rule of law. What does God think about this? How am I going to handle this? And when you don't, then the last part of the verse. But destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. Many of God's people failed to follow and apply the rule of law. They failed to judge the things in their own life, but they're so good at judging the things in everybody else's life. They went on a crime spree in their life spiritually, forsaking any law of God and just living a lawless life. And now they wound up in prison, spiritually speaking. Just like a real criminal goes on a crime spree, going to get caught sooner or later, going to go to prison. You as a child of God who live a life of crime and spiritual crime and do your own thing and thumb your nose at the law of God, you're going to wind up in prison. It won't be a prison of literal bars, but it'll be a prison that holds you in a stronghold that you'll never break out of. It'll be the spiritual San Quentin of your life. Prison of a destroyed, worthless, empty life that you wind up doing a life sentence without parole of no hope. Just one bad choice after the other. Just one failed child after the other. Just one failed attempt in life after the other. Just one downside. No wonder we're miserable. No wonder we're no wonder we're spiritually poor. No wonder that we're wretched. No wonder, as the Bible says, we as God's people today have all these problems. You know why? We're in prison. We've lived our life and thumbed our nose at the rule of law, and the Holy Spirit of God has arrested us, and now we are living a life of destruction because of the works of iniquity. We're held in bondage. And the longer you stay in it, you know, in the prison system, they have a word called institutionalized. A guy that's in prison for four, five, six, seven, eight years, he wants to get out. Guy in 10, 12 years, he wants to get out. You get a guy that's in prison for 20, 30, 35 years who has been void of a life on the outside, he gets institutionalized. You know what? He doesn't want to come out. He won't know how to function in the real world, and he finds his security, believe it or not, in the very prison that holds him captive because he has lost his ability to identify with anything that is wholesome and decent. You'll become the same way. 25, 35 years of sin, you'll become institutionalized to it. The thought of doing right and getting your life right with God is just outside the realm of possibility for you. You actually find a security. But it's a destruction. And that's just, that's just the way it goes. The Pharisees wound up where they were because the Bible says in Matthew 23, verse 23, that they omitted the matters of judgment in their own life. Oh, they judged everybody else, but they couldn't judge their own selves. It's a simple fact. <clears throat> a saved man or a saved woman will care about what God thinks. It's just plain and simple. 
you won't be oblivious to the Word of God. You won't be oblivious to the principles. You won't live your life just carefree, throwing the principles aside. He'll care more about what God thinks than he will about the people around him. Think about him. The truth of God's Word will be his foundation of everything in his life, and he will rejoice, as the verse says. He'll rejoice to do right in them. You know, <clears throat> when I first, before I went in the Army for a short period of time, I, my brother-in-law got me a job at a steel mill called Republic Steel. And I worked the midnight shift. <clears throat> There's probably nothing more dirtier than a steel mill. And I was a hand grinder. <clears throat> what they did is they'd bring these big crane, would bring down 10,000 pounds of steel bars, and they'd drop them there. We'd turn them on, a, on, a, on the waves there, you know. We'd have these big grinders, and we'd grind the cracks out of them and then send them all out. I'd go in about 11 o'clock at night and work till 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. Steel mill was the dirtiest, filthiest place, especially this one. It had been around for probably 100 years. When I come out of the morning, I was absolutely black. My clothes were black. My face was black. My hands were black. I mean to tell you, the soot from the dirt from that mill just got everywhere on me. It was in my hair, it was in my ears, it was in my nose, it was in my eyes. I mean, <clears throat> I was just covered with the filth and the soot from that dirty steel mill. And I could not wait to get home, to get the hot shower going and wash the dirt off. And you know what? I want to tell you something. When you're that dirty, because of the fact that you're working in a place like that, there is no greater feeling when you step out of that shower to know that all the dirt is gone and you're now clean. And I want to tell you something. Just like I went to work in the steel mill and I never tried to get dirty. You'll go through this life and some of you will never try to get dirty, but the filth of this old world will get on you just like the filth of that mill got on me. And you will get dirty. And I want to tell you something. The greatest feeling on the planet the greatest feeling on the planet is for a child of God to know he's clean with God and clean with God and crystal clean and the clean feeling we have because of the fact that we got it right with God. Child of God feels good after he gets his washing, washes off the filth of this old world. Nothing on this planet will be a better feeling than to be clean before God in your life. Look at verse 16. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. Now let me say this. The key word here is understanding. Now you'll never be where God wants you to be without his understanding of things. And I cannot stress this enough. The goal of each of us, no matter where we are at in life, should be to get to that place in our Christian life, the place of God's understanding. God's understanding, put it in basic, graphic, simple terms. Your life is like a ship on the sea that can be tossed to and fro by everything that comes along in that vast ocean. Bible principles, God's understanding will be the anchor that holds you steady in rough times. And I want to take a few moments here and I want to talk to you about the man that wandereth out of the way of understanding. 
Everything I do here in this church is to help you in two ways. You may not see it. You may not even appreciate it. You may not care. You may not like it. But everything I do for you is to help you in two ways. One, for you to see that how important it is for you to get the principles of God in your life. And two, when you do get them, to show do how to use them in your life to get them to work for your life. Having God's perspective on the issues of life. No greater thing on this planet. Now I want to take a moment and I want to I want to, I want to show you some things on this eye concept of wandering out of the way of understanding. I want to put it into an Old Testament context, and I want to put it into a New Testament context. This is what I want you to learn about the Bible. This is going to be a gigantic piece of your puzzle. This is what I gave them yesterday in Bible Institute when I told them that we have come up through all of these things now, and here we are at the first coming of Christ. We just stood right there for the whole time period, and laid it out. This is the premier point in history. All history looks, all history, all history looks to it, up to it. All history for us looks back to it. It's the key place. The day that Jesus Christ showed up, and the world was never the same. You remember, I gave you five things yesterday. Five things yesterday that when somebody wants to argue with you about the Bible and God and there is no God and how you know the Bible is true and how you know this and all you know. I gave you five things that are absolutely unrefutable that prove beyond any question of a doubt that everything that God said, everything that God is, and everything the Bible is, is true. So you have that now. But I want to talk about two great doctrinal teachings here on this, and, and I want you to get these in your Bible if you so desire. I want to talk about a man wandering out of the way of understanding. I want to talk about it first in an Old Testament sense as we find it in Proverbs, and I want to talk about it in a practical sense as we find it in the New Testament. Now, the standard teaching today is this. If you've been around here any length of time, you do know this. The standard teaching today in Christianity is that people in the Old Testament were saved just like people in the New Testament. That's the standard teaching. I don't care where you go today, uh, most Baptist churches, all evangelical churches, but most Baptist churches, most evangelical churches, all churches, for the most part, they will believe that everybody in the Old Testament is saved exactly the same way as they are in the New Testament, like you and me. They'll teach that on the basis of their reasoning is that because Calvary uh, is the focal point in history, and certainly all history looks back and all history looks forward, they assume, based on that, without ever investigating into the Bible, they assume, based on that, that everybody in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross, and everybody in the New Testament, you and me, look back to the cross. You know, it's true. You and I look back to the cross, but it's not true. Nothing could be farther from the truth. No one in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross. Bible makes it very clear that the sufferings of Christ, the Jew couldn't even see it. And I told you yesterday and showed you how the Jew missed the first coming of Christ out of 1 Peter chapter 1 because the first and second coming of Christ were put in together and he couldn't delineate between the two. So he missed him. Somebody said, well, in the Old Testament, they all were looking forward to the cross. Really, It's like a lot. It's like the heresy that's taught in Genesis chapter 6 that the sons of God in Genesis 6 were the saved people marrying unsaved people? 
I've heard that all my life, and that's the standard teaching today because they don't know anything about the Bible. And when you put yourself out there like that, you know, you got a million loopholes hanging out there that somebody's going to kill you on. Guy said to me one time, he said, he, he said, well, he says, I believe that those sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 were saved people because all the saved people back there were marrying unsaved people, and uh, that, that's what it was. There's nothing about the angels or the sons of God or none of that stuff. That's, that's crazy, man. It was just saved people marrying unsaved people, uh, and that's what, that's what was going on. And I said, is that right? And I said, that's right. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. A lot of saved people back there? Yeah, 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 there was a lot of them. Okay, how come they didn't get on the ark? He never thought of that. Now, if God told me or told you that 30 days from now, he's going to wipe out the planet with a flood, and you were going to build a boat, and you told me, I'd be standing in line helping you build that boat. I'd be the first one on that boat. Why weren't they? Because they weren't saved people. And I take that same analogy and I say, if everybody was looking forward to the cross, how come they crucified him? Why didn't everybody say, here he is, let's go. You see, when you get out of the Bible, you lose your mind. You do. You lose God's mind. Then you're in trouble. Now, the Bible, there's two great stumbling blocks. And I'm going to give you this. It's worth $10 million in gold bullion. And you need to get it in your Bible at some point. Listen to what I'm about to say. Let's talk about the Old Testament first. The Old Testament was written fundamentally. I know there's a lot of reasons for it. I know God doing a lot of things. I get it. But if you want to scrape it down to the bottom foundation of why the Old Testament, why God fundamentally wrote it, he wrote it to mess up the Gentiles. You find this in Romans chapter 1 because the Old Testament is about a theocratic, military, visible kingdom that is centered around Jerusalem for the salvation of the world. And the Gentiles just wouldn't have that. All the Gentile nations want to be the number one nation. Just look at history. We're in a fight right now between Russia, America, North Korea, and China on who's number one. It's always been that way. Every war that we've had has been because one nation wanted to be the top dog. And that top dog was never going to be the nation of Israel. So when God wrote the Old Testament, he wrote it to mess up the Gentiles. That they would have to look and be faced with the fact that God's people, the nation of Israel, was going to be the premier nation by which the world was going to run. And Gentiles couldn't handle that. It became a stumbling block to them. Romans chapter 1. Now the New Testament. The New Testament was written to mess up a Jew. Because the New Testament is a spiritual kingdom of God. And it's based on a spiritual grace situation that you can't get. And it becomes a stumbling block. It all comes down to what I've told you a hundred thousand times. That the whole Bible and understanding it hinges on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Everybody today believes they're the same. And when you take that position, you're done. You ain't going nowhere. You're going to have to get canned Bible from a canned sermon.
You won't get any meat in the sermons. It'll be hostess Twinkies put out by a bunch of little ho-hos. Now, in both cases, they can't get it because of the wrong attitude of heart. You see Israel not getting it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 13. And God says, okay, I'm going to hide it from you. You see the church can't get it in Revelation chapter 3. So God says, you ain't getting anything. Now, this is the reason some of God's people can't get it, most of them. Their attitude toward the Word of God is that they think that the Bible is not the Word of God. They don't make it the final authority. So therefore, when they see these things, when a Gentile sees the Old Testament as Israel as the premier nation, hey, you go to school, proof's in the pudding. You go to high school, you go to college, you take a world history class, they will talk about the dynasties of the Egyptians, they will talk about the Greeks, they will talk about the Persians, they will talk about every of those Gentile nations. They will never mention to you that the time, the greatest history of the world was under Solomon when Israel ran the world. Never hear it. You know why? They stumbled at the stumbling block. You know what's wrong with the Jew today? He stumbles at the stumbling block, the New Testament. He won't even accept it. Now get this. The difference between the Old Testament salvation and a man wandering out of the understanding of God the difference between the salvation in the Old Testament and the salvation in the New Testament will be the object of their obedience. People cannot get this today. In the Old Testament, that object varied according to God dealing with them in different dispensations. Uh, you'll find in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God would in sundry times and diverse manners. He did it different ways, but in the last days, the church age has spake to us through his son. Right there it is. It's right there. The whole book of Hebrews, another book they can't get. The whole book of Hebrews is a comparison of what the Jew had in the Old Testament, which was okay, but wasn't perfect, and what we have in the New Testament that is not just okay, it is perfect. And he compares the two. How do you miss that? unless you got an education and a Ph.D. in theology. How do you miss that? In the Old Testament, the object varied. In the New Testament, which is better than the Old Testament, the object is fixed. The object of their obedience is fixed on the person of Christ and His finished work, the blood atonement, a better sacrifice, Hebrews says. In the Old Testament, here it comes, based on our verse. I want you to understand this. In the Old Testament, if a man wandered away from God's understanding, they left God's word, he lost his righteousness and went to hell. Congregation of the dead. In our verse. Oh, I can hear it now. Heresy! Oh, oh, oh. Just hang on. Just hang on. Allow me to reveal your stupidity before the whole known world. And it won't take long. Now get these two verses down. This is basic Bible one-on-one when I grew up. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 20. I hate to do a terrible, horrible thing to your theology and bring up the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 20. I'll wait till you all get there. Yes, it's in the Old Testament. Right before Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 20. Again, here it comes. 
when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall, here it comes, die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require thine hand. You see that? There's an example where a man had righteousness in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament sense. And he walked in it. And then he wandered out of the way of understanding. God takes his righteousness from him. And he dies now in his sin. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24, 25, and 26. But when the righteous, but when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin, that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. Now, is there anybody here, anybody, that thinks that you can go to heaven when you die in your sin? Anybody? Absolutely not. You see, that's the Old Testament. It's not the fact that people in the Old Testament are saved like the people in the New Testament. Old Testament people did not have salvation in any way, shape, or form the way you do. Why? Because Christ hadn't come and died. My goodness, folks. When they died, they didn't even go to the same place. Hebrews says that the Old Testament was good, but it couldn't. The blood of bulls and goats, goats could not take away sin. So it was a temporary righteousness based on their obedience to what God told them. And when they wandered out of the way into iniquity, God takes that righteousness away from them. Now, this is the situation you have. Great example in the Bible. This is the situation you have with Saul. And I've had guys all my life argue me when I said that Saul died and went to hell. Oh, I've just heard, oh, how can you say that? Uh, Saul didn't, I mean, how can you say that? I mean, uh, okay, let me show you how I can say that. It's called the Bible. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 14 says that Saul lost God's spirit. Question, can you go to heaven without God's spirit? 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, the same verse says that after he lost God's spirit, he got an evil spirit from the Lord. Okay, can you lose God's spirit, get an evil spirit, and go to heaven? That's a question. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 15 says that Saul lost God. Okay, now, can you lose God's spirit, get an evil spirit, lose God, and go to heaven? Now, if that wasn't enough, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15 says that God took his mercy from Saul. So now here's the real question. Can you lose God's spirit and get an evil spirit from the Lord and go to heaven? Can you lose God and go to heaven? And the real kicker is this. Can you go to heaven without God's mercy? Of course you can. 
So our verses in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 16, the scenario of salvation is a man that in the Old Testament scenario leaves God and loses his righteousness and winds up in hell, and he's now with the congregation of the dead. And in the Old Testament, that's the definition of the congregation of the dead, dying and going to hell. Now in the New Testament, this concept of wandering out of the way of understanding and winding up in a congregation of the dead, totally different. And I want you to see the difference. I've clearly laid out for you, given you the great verses that show you that in the Old Testament, based on a literal, visible kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, totally different from the kingdom of God. Everything is literal that a man could get God's righteousness and if he wandered out of the way of understanding, God took those righteousness back if he got into iniquity and he died in his sin. Doesn't get any clearer than that. Now the New Testament is different. Christ's death on the cross finished what the Old Testament started by making it complete. In the Old Testament, there was never any basis for a man to get his sins completely forgiven because Christ hadn't died. That's the number one thing. If they're saved in the Old Testament like we're saved in the New Testament, on what basis is that? You say, well, they were looking forward to the cross. If that's the case, then why give the animals for sacrifice? Just look toward the cross. If God was going to, if God was going to absolve them of their sin in the Old Testament by looking forward to the cross, what's the deal with all those poor animals? Pete ought to be all over that. That's different. You see, Christ's death on the cross brought in the New Testament of His blood, which brought about a complete new concept of getting God's righteousness. Because in the Old Testament, there was never any basis for a man to get his sins forgiven completely because Christ hadn't died and shed the blood. Now, for sure, without any question about it, you take the concept of faith and grace. They're both in operation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can't get anything from God without grace and faith. There's no question about that. It's just they're not applied the same way. One kingdom is a physical kingdom. One kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. They're not the same. The kingdom of God is not the kingdom of the saint of heaven, and the salvation in both kingdoms are not the same. One is based on a system that God told them to follow what He told them in the Old Testament and exercise faith and in that, and God will give them the grace to do it. The other one is based on the finished work of Christ and you exercising faith through His grace and getting saved. One's physical, one's spiritual. In the New Testament, at the time of salvation, you're now put into the body of Christ through a spiritual operation that separates you from your sins. See Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. And you were told in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, that when you did that, down in verse 17, that the Old Testament now is gone away out of your life. So the Old Testament couldn't have been part of their salvation in the New Testament the same way because when you got saved, it says in Colossians 2 that all those things in the Old Testament are now done away with when he died. They were done away with because they weren't any good compared to his sacrifice. The blood of bulls and coats couldn't pay for your sin. Now let me just say this statement to you based on the comparison. God will never take his righteousness away from you no matter how far you wander. In the New Testament. Thank God for that. Amen. But he will in the Old Testament. 
And the reason why he won't do it in the New Testament is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, He that is born of God did not commit sin. When you got saved in a New Testament sense and got put into the body of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, as far as God looking at you, you are sinless. Because he separated your old nature from your new nature. He saved the new nature. He did not save the old nature. You have to struggle with your flesh. There come the principles and you're making the judgment calls on it. But at the end of the day, God looks at you and me. If you're truly saved, you're already seated in heavenly places. You're sinless. And yet, oh, the scholarship have a problem with that verse. He that is born of God does not commit sin. There's only one Greek manuscript that that's found in. It's the one that your King James Bible comes from. All the other ones don't have it in. You'll find it in Stephanus. You'll find it in Bessus. You'll find it in, uh, in the uh, Antiochian, the Syrian type manuscript. You will not find it in the Alexandrian or the Western or the Hesychian. You won't find them. They're not there. It's not there. So scholarship who dumps the King James Bible, follows all the demonic text of the, of the new Bibles, they simply say that verse shouldn't be in your Bible. You know why they think it shouldn't be in their Bible? They ain't got a clue how a person got saved. And so in all the new translations it says, my Bible says he that is born of God does not commit sin because once you get saved, you are sealed under the day of redemption and your soul is sinless. They can't buy that. They don't have a clue what I'm talking about. So they got to change the verse. He that is born of God does not practice sin. See, that works better for you. But it doesn't really. Because I practice sin all the time. Amen. And so do you. And if there's any place where the old adage come in, practice makes perfect. We practice sin. What are you talking about? It, that doesn't work. The only way it'll work is to take it as you find it. If you're born of God here this morning, your soul is sinless. You don't sin. Somebody says, well, how can a man be born of God uh, and, and not be sin when he still sinned? Because you idiot... Colossians 2 says he separated the old nature from the new nature. Your flesh will still sin, but your flesh didn't get saved. Your soul got saved, and your soul cannot sin. That's what got born of God, wasn't your flesh? You think my flesh is saved? Just pull out in front of me out of the parking lot and find out. (laughs) Cut me off on the freeway, and I'll give you the pray Jesus signal. God will never take his righteousness away from you and me or his mercy because you're part of his body. The Old Testament Jew never was part of his body. Two different kingdoms. Now, verse 16 says that for us in the New Testament, uh, that the congregation of the dead, what does that mean? It means when a man leaves the word of God and forsakes God, a saved person, you and me, when you do it, when I do it, When in the New Testament we leave the Word of God and we wander out of the way of understanding, then you and I wind up spending our lives with dead people, dead in trespasses of sin. We hang out with them at the bars. We hang out with them wherever they go. We go to their parties. We go to their football games. We go to their homes. We go to this. We go there. And we actually, as a child of God, are now spending time in a congregation of unsaved people, congregation of the dead. We go boating with them. We go fishing with them. We go hunting with them. We we do all the things with them. When we get out of the way of understanding. And we go and we remain in the congregation of the dead, dead in trespasses of sin. Some of God's people today are living that very principle. 
and it's, it's, it's not where you need to be with God and living in a congregation of the unsaved men and women, but that's where you're at. You congregate with unsaved people. That's your congregation. Now listen to me. To try to make Old Testament salvation and New Testament salvation the same, you have to have zero, zero, zero understanding of the basic doctrines of the Bible. You just got to get there. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how absolutely ridiculously idiotic that idea is alongside Bible doctrine. Yet that is the standard teaching today because the churches, the pastors today have wandered out of the way of understanding. It's no wonder God's people are literally starving to death and every Sunday morning eating the slop out of the garbage can that they put out. And they don't even know it. Now look at verse 17. We'll close with this and it pulls it all together. He that loveth pleasure shall be poor, be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Now, if you're living in the world in America today, or even as a saved man in the Laodicean church age, uh, you, uh, you, uh, you, you probably think that the Holy Spirit of God missed that one. Because as we look at Christianity, and certainly the world, and certainly Christianity, that seems not to be true. I mean, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 and 18 says that our church, the Laodicean church, is increased with goods and have need of nothing. Uh, you think the Holy Spirit of God missed that concept because we all see unsaved people and saved people who seem to live just fine in spite of the proverb. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, wine represents a life of luxury, a life of pleasure and relaxation in the worldly sense. New wine represents the blood of Christ, Deuteronomy chapter 32. We know that. It's a contrast. Oil in the Old Testament will represent wealth. And also in the New Testament, the oil. Remember the Shunanite woman that she didn't have any money, so he gave her a pot. She kept filling it up with oil. The more pot she brought, the more oil she got. She was rich. Oil in the Bible in the Old Testament is a sign of riches. Wine in the Bible in the Old Testament is a sign of luxury. Now here starts one of the great paradoxes of the Bible. As I said when we started our sermon today, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, man sees it one way, God sees it another. From God's standpoint, a man who has all their things, material possessions, all the wealth and pleasure uh, beyond belief. He has treasure and he thinks he's rich, but in reality, real wealth and real prosperity didn't come from the world as we know it and the things that we have, but from the true riches found in the Word of God. I had to laugh this week. I always make note of these things when they happen. I sometimes don't say much, but I'm always checking it out. You Hefner died this week. You all know who you Hefner was, right? The original Playboy, Playboy Mansion, Playboy Bunnies. Gave a whole new meaning to rabbit season. In 1950, he put out his first Playboy magazine, Marilyn Monroe, Poe's Nude in it. From that point on, from the 1950s up to even today, it's still out. Uh, he was 91 years old. And he had a Playboy mansion that was worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Had an underground grotto for their orgies, you know, and all that stuff. And he, his whole life, he lived with Playboy bunnies that, that uh, and he got them, helped them here, helped them there. And it was a, oh, it was a, I mean, probably, I mean, every, it was a mess. And he died. 
and I was looking at the internet, and uh, it come up up there. You Hefter, the Playboy, Playboy, of Playboys is now dead at 91. So I had to get in there, and they had the three ladies that he was living with. He was 91; they were probably in their 20s, and those were his wives or whatever they were, you know. And they were all talking about how they're going to miss him and all that stuff. You, you know, you and how great he was and all that stuff. Good, good stuff. He's going to be buried in the same crypt alongside of Marilyn Monroe. Now, Marilyn Monroe died when I was just a kid. The Kennedys killed her, but we don't have time to get into that. <laughs> Ask me sometime, I'll tell you that story. Anyway, before he died, he had made plans to be buried alongside Marilyn Monroe in a crypt. Now, you know what his statement was? From the playboy of playboys of playboys, his last statement was this about being buried next to Marilyn Monroe. He says, I can't imagine how wonderful it will be to be by Marilyn's side for all of eternity. Now, don't shake your head. That was a very prophetic statement. Because they're both in hell this morning. And they are both screaming their lungs out. It's just not the pleasure that he thought it would be. Because the worldly pleasure of the world that we think is so wonderful in reality when God see it from God's way, in his mind, that's the world. Oh, I can't think of a more pleasurable experience of lying for eternity next to Marilyn Monroe. My favorite verse when I think something like that is over there in Luke 16. I don't remember the verse exactly, but it's about the rich man in hell. And every time I see something or hear something <coughs> where the guy went to hell and the world takes another position, that verse comes to mind. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. I guarantee you, being beside Marilyn Monroe for all of eternity is not what he thought it was going to be. Man looks at it one way. God looks at it another way. He said everything in life. He wandered out of the way of understanding. He came to the place like the whole world that he looked at everything the way the world looks without God. <clears throat> Listen. There are families down in Georgia and Alabama who live in a tar paper shack and eat beans and rice four days a week. Have no shoes for their kids who are richer than all the rich people in America put together today. Because they got the true riches. They have what Christianity don't have today. They can have pleasure. You buy things, it's pleasure. You go places, it's pleasure. You smoke something, it's pleasurable. You hang out with somebody, it's pleasurable. The world can give you pleasure. But what the world cannot give you is contentment. Contentment only comes from God's Word. And Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 says, Whatever state I am in, therewith to be content. Contentment. Physical things, cars, boats, houses, motorcycles, vacations on the Riviera, money, they all may give you pleasure, but they'll never give you contentment. Because the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, 1, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Be content with such things that you have. 
we will never have the contentment of God in our lives till we get the understanding of God in our lives. And that will only come through the true riches of the Word of God in our life, through the principles of the Word of God. And it all goes back to the start of our passage today, being happy about making the judgment calls in our life of the things that got to go. Not begrudging them. Not like Lot's wife, I got to let him go. I got to let her go. Or I'm going to let him go, but I'm going to keep it over here. Or I'll just keep it over now. Let him go. Let him go. Be happy about it. Care about what God thinks about where you're at more than anybody else thinks about where you're at. We're so worried about hurting this guy's feelings or this person's feelings. Well, I don't want to cut it off. I don't want to tell them this. I don't want to tell them. I don't want to hurt their feelings. What about God's feelings? Does he not have any feelings in this? The second thing, being happy to make the judgment calls in our life. And number two, not wandering out of the way of understanding. Stay with the book. Stay with the principles. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. We're all going to screw up. That just goes with the territory of the world we live in. As old Martin Luther used to say, keep short accounts with God. Don't let it grow legs. Don't let it overcome anything. Don't let it get to the place in your life where it changes you and pulls you out of the way of understanding. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer. Don't forget the food list for Joe.